0: Episode 13, Treating COVID Injection Injuries, part one of an ongoing series. As the experimental COVID-19 injection body count piles up, the need to develop effective therapies for the ever-growing laundry list of injuries is becoming increasingly urgent. Yet people who have suffered such injuries face almost insurmountable barriers to receiving treatment within our existing sick care system. Firstly, getting symptoms recognised as adverse reactions to COVID-19 injections is virtually impossible as doctors and other healthcare providers are either too frightened of incurring backlash from their regulatory bodies or in total denial that the jabs could be causing harm. Newsflash, you don't see safety signals like the chart that I've embedded in the post accompanying this podcast episode from Safe Products. Just take a look at the chart of adverse reactions to vaccines reported today in the database of adverse events notifications and compare the, the reported reactions to previous vaccines to the COVID-19 injections. Secondly, even if doctors had the guts and integrity to acknowledge that many of their patients' new-onset health problems were directly caused by COVID-19 injections, research on how to treat injection injuries is not being funded. There are no articles in medical journals on how to treat injection-induced neurological damage or autoimmune diseases. The AMA is not running CME courses on how to help patients with post-jab runaway cancers or herpes infections. And there are no medical conferences in exotic locations on how to help people who have crippling fatigue or all over body pain since they're shot, hence most doctors have no idea how to help people with injection related illnesses even if they wanted to. Thirdly, the structure of the sick care system is already ill-suited to treating people with complex multi-system health problems. Just ask any person with a chronic illness what it's like to try to distill their entire medical history into a 15-minute GP consultation and then to navigate between the frequently conflicting advice and multiple prescriptions of their neurologist, gastroenterologist, endocrinologist, gynecologist and umpteen other-ologists whom the GP refers them to, none of whom are remotely interested in any symptoms occurring outside the body part they specialise in. You can multiply that chaos and confusion by 1,000 fold when it comes to addressing jab injuries. Welcome to the Blind Men and the Elephant Medical Edition. And fourthly, there's a very real threat that the jab injured may be shut out of Australia's supposedly universal healthcare system if they fail to stay up to date with their prescribed injections. I've heard multiple anecdotal reports of hospitals refusing to provide maternity services to unjabbed pregnant women, even when dangerous complications arose during labour, and GP practices shutting their doors to unjabbed patients. Recently, one of my clients disclosed that she was informed that she could not receive treatment for breast cancer unless she submitted to the COVID-19 injection regime. She reluctantly assented to the first two shots, but is now being told that unless she accepts the booster shot, her ongoing treatments will be cancelled. The fact that the injections don't prevent infection with nor transmission of SARS-CoV-2 doesn't even slightly mitigate the sanctimonious self-justification for completely abandoning the Hippocratic Oath evinced by medicos like Philip, whose letter I'm about to read out to you. So don't delude yourself that someone this mired in ignorant, arrogant self-righteousness is going to acknowledge an attempt to treat your jab injury. And this is Philip's reply to an article published on the Medical Journal of Australia's website. Quote, I will attempt to discern the motive behind the freely chosen, unvaccinated state of each person after establishing the truth of it being chosen. I will address each stated reason if the person permits it and will bring at least two issues to bear. The attendant responsibilities which go with rights and the courage slash cowardice spectrum properly attached to the morality of choice which involves the well-being and danger of others. All vaccinated people will be subject to discrimination in my practice and on my premises. This will have no regard to the reason. Reasons which brought their unprotected state about will be determined by their potential to bring infectious carriers to a degree higher than all others. Parenthetically, that is complete rubbish. That is a total lie. And the fact that someone who, who is a registered medical practitioner does not know that is unforgivable. OK, editorial over. The prevalence of a deadly and highly infectious virus is sufficient reason for this to be wise and prudent. Once again, you know, my, my side note here. The fact that that this is Ignorant doctor is unaware of the incredible degree of, of age and risk stratification that this supposedly deadly virus carries is just unforgivable. Hey, going on with the rest of Philip's letter. Such people can expect me to behave as if well, I am one of their potential victims. Boy, he really believes in how protective the, the COVID jab is, doesn't he? as well as all the other people who were in my surgery, either as staff or waiting for medical attention. I remember well, much more than 50 years ago, as a student attending cardiology OPD, witnessing the senior consultant tell a middle-aged businessman that if he continued to smoke, it would mean he would not be seen or treated by him again. And that was not long after a tutorial in neurology OPD, where the chief consultant told a woman having serious hemiplegic migraine he would not treat her if she refused to cease taking the oral contraceptive. Two unforgettable examples of tough love, end of quote, by the lovely Dr. Philip. So that's the bad news. The good news is that outside the noxious echo chamber of the pharmaceutical medical industrial complex, the old fashioned practice of patient-centered healthcare has been revived by the manufactured COVID crisis. Independently minded practitioners of both orthodox medicine and alternative healthcare have realised that since they can no longer believe a word that comes out of the mouths of bought and paid for public health officials and heads of regulatory and licensing bodies, nor a word printed in medical journals, they're going to have to revert to time-tested practices of caring for sick people. Number one, listen carefully to the patient or client in front of you and spend as long as you have to to take a detailed case history, including a timeline of all symptoms and any antecedent events. Number two, form a number of hypotheses about what might be causing the clinical picture and gather evidence for and against these hypotheses, both through laboratory testing and through consulting the research literature on known and emerging pathological mechanisms that could contribute to this clinical picture. Number three, develop a treatment plan based on your strongest hypothesis and meticulously document the outcomes of treatment. Number four, discuss your clinical observations with other practitioners. And number five, refine the treatment plan iteratively as new data, both clinical and research become available. And just a note that the post that accompanies this particular podcast episode is intended by by me to be a living document and it will be updated as new information becomes available about the mechanisms by which COVID-19 injections are causing harm and the therapeutic modalities that are either showing promise or have been definitively demonstrated to allay these harms. And also note that none of the following constitutes medical advice and you should always consult a knowledgeable practitioner to develop a treatment plan that's tailored to your personal situation. So how do COVID-19 injections cause harm? The first mechanism is microvascular thrombosis. The fact that in a substantial proportion of people who receive them, COVID-19 injections cause microscopic blood clots in the tiny blood vessels that supply the brain, lungs, heart, kidneys, liver, and other vital organs with blood was first publicly discussed by Canadian Dr. Charles Hoff in July 2021. Dr. Hoff used the D-dimer blood test to identify recently formed blood clots in 62% of patients whom he tested within four to seven days after they'd taken a COVID-19 injection. Depending on the location or locations where these microscopic clots form, individuals might experience persistent headache, confusion, stroke, personality changes and cognitive decline, pain, numbness or tingling in the extremities, progressing in more severe cases to the need for amputation, liver, kidney or heart failure, fatigue and reduced exercise tolerance, pulmonary arterial hypertension, miscarriage or stillbirth or blurred vision or hearing loss. The fact that 38% of Dr. Hoff's recently jabbed patients did not have elevated D-dimer levels speaks to individual differences in propensity to form clots, and some of these differences are subject to influence through lifestyle choices and therapeutic interventions. So let's look at a few mechanisms for reducing the risk of microvascular thrombosis. Firstly, aspirin and related compounds. The traditional mainstay of antithrombotic therapy, aspirin, is recommended in some protocols intended to prevent or reduce the side effects of COVID-19 jabs, and I have links in the post accompanying this podcast episode. However, aspirin carries its own risks, and it may not be suitable for everyone. Fortunately, there are many plant foods that are rich in salicylic acid, which is the principal metabolite of aspirin. And research has demonstrated that the range of blood levels of salicylic acid found in people taking low-dose aspirin overlaps with the range found in people on vegetarian diets. Spices, especially cardamom, cumin, paprika, and black cumin, herbs, especially rosemary, oregano, and thyme, fruits, especially nectarines and berries, and tea, all contain substantial amounts of salicylic acid. And when consumed as part of daily meals can help to maintain blood levels of this metabolite that may reduce clotting risk. Secondly, natto kinase. This is a potent blood clot dissolving enzyme which has been used for the treatment of cardiovascular diseases. Natto kinase is produced by the bacterium Bacillus subtilis during the fermentation of soybeans to produce the traditional Japanese food natto. While natto is characterized as an acquired taste, variously described as like old cheese, slime and snot, natto kinase is available in supplement form. And three, seratiopeptidase. Like natokinase, seratiopeptidase is a proteolytic or protein degrading enzyme. As well as helping to break down fibrin, which is a crucial protein involved in the formation of blood clots, seratiopeptidase also has anti inflammatory, analgesic or pain relieving, and anti edemic effects, which may be useful for some types of COVID 19 injection injuries. Seratio peptidase's ability to break down dead or damaged tissue may also prove useful in clearing necrosis from areas affected by microthromboses. Researchers have proposed using peptidase to treat COVID 19, and many of the mechanisms they identified, especially its anti inflammatory, fibrin degrading, antioxidant, and mast cell stabilizing properties, are also relevant to injection injuries. Originally derived from bacteria that inhabit the intestines of silkworms, it is now produced synthetically and marketed as seropeptase. And I have more coming soon on this topic, so watch out for the next podcast episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials, and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.